You're listening to the Arts in Isolation podcast, brought to you by Asia House. Welcome, this is Juan de Lara, cultural manager at Asia House. And as every week, Asia House and the Barga Trust bring you a podcast about converging paths and creative encounters with the Muslim world. This is on with the support of the Alhan Trust for Culture and the Altair Trust. I'm very glad that during these hard times, we have successfully managed to make a gap in your hearts and in your homes by being there, and that thousands of you are listening to us every week. I'm very happy also to be able to introduce you today to an art practitioner who many of you already know. His work has been shown in institutions and public spaces all over the world, including most notably l'Institut du Mont Arabe in Paris and the favelas of Rio de Janeiro on the DMZ in between North and South Korea, in the slums of Cape Town, and in the heart of Cairo's garbage collector's neighborhood. In 2017, he won the UNESCO Sharjah Prize for Arab Culture, and he has also been named a global thinker in 2016 by foreign policy for his project Perception in Cairo. Of course, we're talking about El Cid. Welcome, El Cid, and thank you so much for being here with us today. I wanted to start by making a connection with one of the movies that we screened at Asia House this year, part of the Converging Paths series called Traces of the Soul. We were fascinated to see the work you did in Cairo at the neighborhood of garbage collectors, and I think the audience should be more aware of it. Why do you think this piece is so important to all of us? What can we learn from it? You know, Juan, the, uh, when I create artwork in the in the public space, I always uh, I think of a, of a theme. So when I did this project in the garbage collector neighborhood of Cairo, I wanted to speak about about perception, you know. And what I mean perception is I wanted to to find a community that would be uh, useful. And this this community actually developed the most powerful recycling system of the world. There is nobody that can recycle more efficiently than the way they do it. And uh, and it happened that they were in Egypt, so that's why I went there. But if they were in Peru or in Japan. I would have gone there and the idea was to uh, you know like to ask ourselves you know like uh, a question actually you know like all this stereotype and misconception we can have on on communities that usually we don't know and we judge like from the first impression you know so that was the idea you know i really wanted to point out this and show how useful they were and also like to highlight this community because a lot of people in Cairo and around the world didn't know, like they were, I mean, they, they existed. And, and that was the main point of this, like we really trying to switch perception. It was a, it was a local project, but with a, a global subject. So anybody around the world can uh, interact or like feel the subject of perception relevant to them. So how do you think the local communities benefit from your art and your work in particular? You know, in terms of benefit, um, I, I don't look at it as, um, you know, like a lot of people ask me, how do you measure the impact of your artwork? And, you know, I think this is a really uh, kind of commercial way of looking at stuff. Why, why do we always measure like the success of something, of something with benefit and, and numbers and stuff? And, and, and for me, it was, a, it was something that we cannot measure, you know. Um, the outcome of this is is more like a, an experience, an experience for me and also for my team, I mean, an experience for this community because they were like a really marginalized, segregated community. They were not open to the uh, outside world, I would say. You know, people used to come there, but uh, they were really suspicious, uh, mainly since what happened like in 2009 during the regime of Hosni Mubarak, where 
is uh, is slaughtered 300,000 pigs, you know, using the H1N1 virus as a pretext, you know, knowing that uh, they use animals to recycle organic waste, you know. So they were really suspicious. But, you know, me, I went with the intention of creating an art piece, and then I, leave, I left with a family. When I say family, I, I met people that came into my life, that I'm still in touch with them today. I was, I was there like a year ago at this time, I was in Egypt. I'm always in touch with them during the COVID. We're talking almost like every two to three weeks, you know, and uh, it's like a family. And that's how I, that's how I look at it, you know, and, uh, and that's for me the, uh, the outcome is that then a lot of people start knowing them. Uh, a lot of people start visiting, you know, the, the neighborhood and visiting the church. But if there is one point I want to highlight, and I think um, I'll, I'll, I'm proud of, is the fact that in Cairo now people call them with a real name. You know, in Cairo, they used to call them the Zabbalin. Zabbalin means the people of the garbage. And, uh, and since we did the project, we tried to rectify that. The real name is Zaraib. Zaraib means the pig's breeder. And that's the way they want people to call them. And I think uh, after the project, we, uh, I think we, we succeeded with this, you know, by switching the perception and just bringing back the real name for the public. Yeah, I agree, because I think many of us see you as a dynamo of change. But I'm also interested in the underlying reality. Could you tell me a bit more about your identity? Who is El Cid? And how much of your cultural baggage defines your artistic style? I'm born and raised in France, you know, from Tunisian parents. I come from like a, a modest uh, social class. My dad was a worker in a Renault factory in Paris, and my mom used to be a nanny. And, uh, and I think, you know, my parents made sure that we, we stay connected, you know, with our country of origin, Tunisia. And this brought me to a kind of, uh, led me actually to a, to an identity crisis. Because uh, growing up in France, I, I, I didn't really felt French. And going to Tunisia in the summer, I didn't really felt Tunisian because in both sides, people made me feel like that. And I think when I was uh, in my early teenage years, uh, I, I felt this need to, to choose between being French or Tunisian. And, you know, looking at my face, I, I realized I was, you know, I look more Arab than French. So I, I decided to run into my Arab identity and start how to, I started learning how to read and write Arabic. And that's how later I discovered Arabic calligraphy. But I was doing graffiti, I mean, uh, since the late 90s in Paris. And... Uh, you know, the more I was digging into my Arab culture, my Arab history, and uh, and more I was growing, you know, with my work as a, as an artist, I realized that I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing today if if I was not French Tunisian, you know, if I, I didn't have this double uh, layer in my identity, you know, I don't say double identity, I really I really say layer because for me identity is made of layer. And so Arabic calligraphy allowed me to reconcile my French and my Tunisian identity, you know. So today I assume I can say uh, easily that I'm French, Tunisian, Tunisian, French. When back in the days that was totally impossible for me, I really, I thought I needed to take a choice and make a choice when this was wrong, you know. So that's how I think my background, my cultural background, and also my social background influenced me as well, you know. And uh, I'm kind of thirsty today to discover new culture and uh, I use my art as a way to build these bridges, you know, between culture. The same way like Arabic calligraphy helped me to bridge, uh, to build the bridge between my French and my Tunisian identity and my, my French and Tunisian culture. I, I wonder what do you find in calligraphy that was special, that was unique? What, what elements of calligraphy drawn you to, to it? You know, I think there is a, a universal beauty in Arabic calligraphy that 
I always say that you don't need to translate. For me, I have created work with Arabic calligraphy all around the world, you know, between the DMZ in North and South Korea, to the favela of Rio de Janeiro, to some town of, uh, of Cape Town, you know. And, and then I, I, I realized that actually Arabic calligraphy was just became, a, it was just a pretext for me, you know, using it as a way of beautifying cities. And uh, it's, I think Arabic calligraphy now today is just the background of everything. What's important for me is the, uh, the human experience, you know, like what I am able to live and what I'm able to experience when I'm inside the community. And I think this is, a, this is the best part. Actually, that's the part that I love the most, you know. But uh, I can definitely state that, you know, like uh, there is a universal beauty in Arabic calligraphy. Why I say that? I feel that, uh, I feel that, you know, Arabic calligraphy reaches your soul before it touches your eyes, you know. So there is a, it creates an emotion, even if you don't understand what is it. That's how I see it. So we have already discussed elements of identity and you have worked all over the world. Where do you think your work is better understood? And... For example, which barriers have you found with regards to your identity or with calligraphy and Arabic calligraphy perhaps being less understood? And have you been able to challenge the perception of perhaps a biased viewer? You know, uh, to be honest, I've been, uh, lucky, I'm lucky enough to say that uh, I met few people who are like opposed to my work, but most of the time, I would say 19%, 99% of the time, people appreciate my work you know i don't talk in the arab or i really talk like in in a, in a in a place that is not arab or say not muslim i don't define my work as a muslim art or something like that because i'm not here to spread anything you know it's uh it's not a religious art i use arabic calligraphy as a as my main medium and people might associate it to islam in a way but uh, what i notice is you know I, I try to connect with communities i try to connect with the place where I'm painting, so uh, I I don't just write words. I write, you know, messages. And uh, what is super important in my work is the work, the um, the documentation, you know, uh, and how I and the research, you know, how before every place I go and I paint, there is a long research time where I try to find the right words relevant to the place. So most of the time, for example, in Brazil, in the favela, I use the poem from a Brazilian poet from one of the favela of Rio that I translated from Portuguese to Arabic. You know, in Egypt, it was a Coptic neighborhood, you know, Christian Coptic. And I used the quote from a Coptic bishop from the fourth century. In uh, South Korea, you know, on the DMZ between North and South Korea, I used a poem from a Korean poet who passed away before the separation. He passed away in 1934. And it was a love poem that put in the context of today was so relevant to the situation. So. I think for me to be accepted is to make sure that I take into consideration the fact that there are people in the place where I'm painting, that they are living there, that they have a history. And the most important thing is to first to discuss with them, to understand them, and then to explain them, you know, what I'm doing. And that's, uh, and that's how it works, I guess. So I think more and more artists all over the world are not only talented and skillful practitioners, they also have some elements of social responsibility. I think in your case, this is more than uh, applicable more than ever. Your work consistently aims at unifying communities and readdressing stereotypes, as you have very well expressed. And we have seen this in the case of your artwork and your piece perception in Cairo. 
moving forward, what key aspects of this do you think need to be addressed with more urgency? You know, uh, I, you know as you mentioned, I, I, I think, and I always say that, that, you know, as an artist, we have a social responsibility, you know, and um, I'm not saying everybody should do the same, but me as an artist, I feel my responsibility is to raise awareness on subjects that maybe people don't talk about, to uh, propose a different lens to look at, uh, to look at the situation, to put the light, actually, uh, the spotlight on, on communities that are neglected, or just sometimes, you know, like uh, trying to bring people together, you know. I think the artist shouldn't be uh, a tool to uh, create conflict and fight between communities. I think we, uh, we are a tool to, yeah, to bring people together. And I noticed that, you know, I, I noticed in, when I was painting, uh, it was so interesting to see how people with, um, with different uh, political view, religious view, uh, would gather at the same place and, uh, and engage a conversation because there is a paint, you know, there is a painting that's happening in the mirror in, in their neighborhood and, and how the painting gather everybody. And uh, I noticed that uh, many times, you know, like during my, uh, during my journey. And that's why I believe, you know, like uh, art is, uh, is definitely a tool of social change. And I witnessed it, you know, I really witnessed it. And, uh, and that's why, you know, I, I, keep, uh, I keep on going toward this direction. I keep on to, to do this, not the same thing, but to, to feed, I mean, I would say this, uh, this journey in a way. Could you perhaps give us some examples of ways in which you have addressed these issues in your work in particular? You know, like I, I give you some example, you know, for example, three years ago in Philadelphia, I used the word of W.E.B. Dubois. A hundred years ago, he was a, a teacher at the, the University of Philadelphia in New York. He, he wrote the first sociological, sociological study on the Afro-American community of, uh, of Philadelphia. Today, I painted this three years ago. The project was about uh, gentrification and displacement, how the black community of the, of the black bottom in West Philly were pushed away by a real estate company uh, years after years, you know, and they were like just displaced. And that was a subject that I talk about. And today this subject is so relevant, you know, when you look at the Black Lives Matters subject, uh, that's one of the topics that people are talking about. Perception was made inside the garbage city I put the highlight here on, on a segregated community, but it was mainly to uh, ask people to question themselves on the way they perceive the people that are different from them. In South and North Korea is about reunification, how an art piece will make people think what are their mistakes or not their mistakes or what they could do. You know, like when you have two people who are same, look the same, eat the same food, speak almost the same language, but are separated because a Russian and American, like more than 60 years ago, didn't agree uh, on something, and then they put a uh, they put a, a border between people. You know, I think this is a subject that I want to tackle. You know, like looking at a, looking at subject maybe from a different lens. You know, and that's uh, that's the thing because sometimes like the work that I do, it won't put the highlight. I mean, perception was a way like in in Cairo was a way to put the highlight in the community. Philadelphia was here to to talk about put the highlight on the, on, the, on the matter of displacement and how, how like from the people who are doing it, uh, they, they make it look positive by calling gentrification and say like, oh, look, we, we embellishing the neighborhood. But from the people who's living it, who has to leave a place that has been living in for years, 
that's called displacement. So it's just sometimes switching the lens and make people look at the subject from a different uh, perspective. I completely agree with you, Elsit. And indeed, sociological perspectives are one of the aspects that all of us as a society need to better cultivate. Oppression, inequality and intersectionality are realities that many of us, living in countries with full high-speed internet connections and high-value commodities, often forget. I really enjoyed this interview because you have put amazing ideas on the table for people to reflect on. And indeed, I wonder what is next? What is the next project that we are going to be hearing about? Big project, but with the COVID, we've been, uh, I mean, slowed, slowed down a bit. But uh, yeah, right now I'm, I'm working on, with my team. We, we plan the next uh, big step, you know, but I cannot say more about it. Well, I'm sure many of us are going to be looking forward to it. I'm sure that it will be striking. So to wrap up, I really wanted to thank you for sharing your time with us today and walking our audience through your inspiring journey as an artist, as I'm sure your words will resonate with many of us and continue encouraging change and social inquiry. I hope that once all the lockdown measurements are eased, you're able to come to London and join us at Asia House for an upcoming event. It would be wonderful to host you. I would love to. I would love to. Thank you, Afon. Thank you so much. And of course, as usual, I want to thank all our listeners and all our friends who every week email us, tells us their opinions about what we're doing. And of course, if you have not done so, please do join up our newsletter, receive the latest updates. I look forward to seeing you next week. And until then, I hope you stay well, enjoy the sun and prepare yourself for a good summer. You were listening to the Arts in Isolation podcast, brought to you by Asia House. For more information, please visit our website, asiahousearts.org.